0: Welcome to Brain and Novat. We have the perfect guest for our show. Those of you that are familiar with the thought experiment of what it is like to be a brain and Nevat and to dealing with simulated realities may very well be big fans of the work of David Chalmers, and he has an incredible book on virtual worlds. David, it's a delight to have you on the show. Would you like to start with a thought experiment?
1: Yeah, thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here on your on your show with its wonderful title for someone like me who thinks about brains and vats. A lot. In fact, I thought I'd start with a just a, an updated variant on the the brain in a vat thought experiment. One which is going to be familiar to many of your listeners and viewers. This is the thought experiment of: Could we be living in the Matrix? Could we be living in a giant computer simulation of reality where it's all generated by a computer and this is gradually virtual reality technology is getting better and better. We're not yet at the point where we can fully simulate a world so that it seems totally indistinguishable from physical reality, but it another 50, hundred years, we may be able to do that. We may be able to connect people up to virtual reality systems that seem exactly like physical reality. And people will be able to tell the difference. And that then raises the question, could that be happening to us? Could we be in a computer simulation right now? And of course, this is wonderfully depicted in the, uh, the movie, the matrix, where I guess Neo, the Keanu Reeves character in the matrix, is not quite a brain in a vat. He's a body in a pod, right? Because uh, in the, in the outside world, he's at his whole body is there in a pod connected up to this giant computer simulation, the matrix. And at some point he takes the red pill and discovers that's been his life all along. So least one aspect of this thought experiment is, could we be in the matrix? Could we be in a giant computer simulation? And I guess I'm inclined to think in principle, we could be because it would be indistinguishable from physical reality. But there are other questions you can ask about this thought experiment, which I'm especially interested in, including just say somehow we discovered that we are in the matrix, that our lives are actually a giant computer simulation. Well, how bad is that? Or is that okay? Or is that uh, is that terrible? One question, some people think that this would mean that everything in our lives was an illusion and that nothing is real. The buildings around us aren't real. Animals aren't real. The people aren't real. I don't know. I'm interested in what, in what people think about that. The other view, which I incline towards, is that even if we are in a matrix, huh, all this may still be real. And then another question is: just it turned out that we're living in the matrix, living in a computer simulation. Does that mean our lives are somehow meaningless? Does that mean that life itself is a, is miserable? It's a fiction. It's a place where nothing that we thought happened ever really happened. Or alternative view, if it turns out that we're in a computer simulation. Our life is still meaningful. We still have relationships with other people. And although this would be interesting in many respects, we could continue to live our lives as before. So, okay, so the, the thought experiment is is the matrix, the idea that we're in a giant computer simulation. And then I think it just raises so many of these questions.
2: Yeah, it, there's an infinite number of interesting questions. One of our previous guests who inspired the art behind us, on it's a piece of art drawn for the show to represent simulation. And the guest was Kenny Pierce. And Kenny Pierce takes an idealist view on the nature of reality. So he thinks that what reality is, is just a combination of ideas. So for him, if we were in some sort of simulation, the simulation would be a series of ideas and reality just is ideas. And so it would be no less real than any other reality because appearances or ideas are what reality is on an idealist perspective. Now you've mentioned that on your view. It wouldn't be that bad, or at least you've intimated it wouldn't be that bad if we were in simulation. Is the reason because you're also adopting this idealist perspective? Yeah,
1: one way to get to my conclusion would be through idealism. I'm not myself an idealist, so that's not uh, the way that I use, but you're absolutely right, though, that just say you did accept idealism. Here's one crude idealist slogan, appearance is reality when it looks like there's a table in front of you and it sounds and feels like there's a table in front of you and all your evidence suggests there's a table in front of you. Then there is a table in front of you because reality just is appearances. That was roughly Barclay's idea, the great George Barclay, the great idealist. So then if we were in a simulation, you'd say, well. All of the appearances are exactly as they would be in physical reality. It looks like there's a table, sounds and feels like there's a table and so on. So according to the idealist, there would be a table. We'd have the appearances of the table. So we'd have the reality of a table. Now, these days, I think most people reject idealism because they want to hold there's more to reality than appearances. The intuitive view is that our appearances are produced by a reality outside our minds. Uh, for example, there are many regularities. I look at the table, I look away, I look back, ah, it's still there. What explains those regularities in my appearances? Many people think the best explanation of that is some external world that goes beyond the appearances. I mean, at this point, even Barclay brings in some element of an external world because he gets God's mind out there to sustain the, the appearances. But yeah, I'm inclined to believe there is something outside, outside our minds. So merely getting the appearances right, isn't enough for reality, but inside a computer simulation, I want to say it's not just appearances. There is actually something out there generating your appearances when you use virtual reality or when you're in a computer simulation and that's the computer. There's this extremely complex computer outside our minds generating what we see and hear and feel. I think that computer is basically playing the role of the external world. And that when so, if it turns out that we're in a computer simulation, it's not that this will be a world of appearances. No, there will actually be objects out there generating my appearances. Just they'll be digital objects. There'll be processes in a computer generating the experiences of of a table, generating the experiences of, of other people. And then I want to say there's basically the table really exists. It's just, it's a digital table. Digital tables may be different from ordinary physical tables, as we conceive see of them, but they're still perfectly real. So that's not quite idealism. I think of it more as a kind of structuralism, what actually is doing the work in in vindicating physical reality is that there are structures out there, outside our minds that generate our experiences.
0: So one thing that might make a difference is whether our perception of reality accords well with what that reality is, regardless of whether it's um, made of bits and bytes or whether it's made of uh, wood and plaster. One of the things that might make a difference is whether all the beings that we encounter have their own conscious states or whether they're non-player characters. If it is the case that the only person in the simulation really is you, but you are deceived into believing that you're engaging in a world with other beings who have their own conscious minds, who can form relationships with you, that seems quite different. That seems like a form of reality that's highly deceptive and one that might wind up being meaningless as well. In other words, you believe that the person who is your wife and your best friend has beliefs about you, loves you, And in actuality, they don't. They're just uh, a non-player character that's part of the simulation. And uh, if you were to know this, you might feel that you are leading a life that is uh, robbed of meaning.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's, That's pretty serious. And this ties to the philosophical problem of other minds. How do we know that anybody else has a mind? How do we know that other people are conscious? If you follow Descartes, then each of us knows that we ourselves have a mind but we're conscious, but what about other people? And when we raise the simulation idea, it's at least a possibility that uh, perhaps it could be that we're the only conscious being in the simulation. Actually, uh, the philosopher, Grace Halton has argued that uh, this might even be quite likely. For example, maybe when beings make simulations, there are very heavy, heavy ethics constraints. Whenever you create a simulated universe, you'd be creating all kinds of All these conscious beings with so much suffering, maybe that's something you're not allowed to do lightly. So most of the time, perhaps they create one conscious being to study and then make everybody else a non-conscious, non-player character. Yeah, if we turned out to be in a world like that, I think that would be very, very depressing. you know, my partner is not actually conscious, doesn't consciously love me. Everybody else out there is is a zombie. Of course, the situation in the Matrix is I mean, there are a lot of people in the matrix are plugged into the matrix with a biological brain and body. And then presumably if biological brains are enough to give you consciousness, then they'll be conscious. There are also some beings in the matrix who don't have biological brains and bodies, the agents, agent Smith, agent Jones, the Oracle, woman in red and so on. And there is an interesting question about whether they would be conscious. If we're in a simulation like that, that kind of comes down to presumably they have simulated brains, if not the original biological brains. And then you have a question about whether simulated brains are enough to give you consciousness. My own view is that is enough to give you consciousness. So even if I'm in a simulation where the other beings are all simulated, that's still consistent with them being conscious. But the problem of other minds is definitely a serious issue, especially when it comes to evaluating yeah the let's say the the value and meaning of these scenarios
2: i want to take a step back because what we've been discussing so far is what are the implications if this is real so if simulations are real what are the implications but i want to take a step back and ask well are we sure this is a simulation? <laughs> so so what, what are the chances that this is a simulation? Is there a greater than 50% chance? Is there a 99% chance? So there have been certain arguments raised by Elon Musk and before him, Nick Bostrom, discussing these issues and, and arguing that we are in a simulation. What are, what are some of the, the more convincing arguments that we are? Or do you find them convincing?
1: I do think there's a very interesting line of thought here that goes back to Hans Moravec, And Nick Bostrom gave the definitive, the definitive exposition of this, of this line and Elon Musk later picked up on it. Basically, basically the line of thought is that there will be many simulations in the history of the cosmos. Simulation technology is something which any intelligent population will eventually be in a position to develop and then to use, and once say a, a single population runs many simulations, there'll be many more simulated worlds than unsimulated worlds, many more simulated beings than unsimulated beings. And then you start to think, well, if there are say thousands of times more simulated beings than unsimulated beings, what are the odds that I'm one of the originals, one of the unsimulated beings, because they are a great minority. You might say there's actually a pretty good reason to think. We're simulated. Elon Musk at this point says, yeah, the odds are billions to one in favor of us being simulated. Bostrom and others don't go quite that far. Bostrom says, well, yeah, all we can conclude is that either most beings are simulated, in which case we're probably simulated, or most populations don't create simulations. And that happens for, he says, for one of two reasons, either they will go extinct before they can. Or they'll be able to create simulations, but they won't. Sympathetic with, with Bostrom's line of argument here. I do think there are various other things that could also go wrong to, they would have the the consequence that they would undercut the argument that we are probably simulated. For example, if it turns out that simulated brains are not conscious, which is something many people think. Many people think if you simulate a brain, it won't be conscious. Then if we knew that. We could then know that we're not simulated brains ourselves because we know that we're conscious and that would arguably rule out at least many versions of the simulation hypothesis. And there are some other things that can go wrong, but you ask for a probability. So, uh, in my book on these topics, reality, plus I speculate something like maybe something over 25% is how I get there. I say, well, for most beings to be simulated, we need at least two things to be true human-like simulations with consciousness, like mine are possible. That's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is if they're possible, many of them will be created. And I just eyeball that and I give at least, well, I think it's at least 50, who knows what the, whether simulations like this are possible, but I thought reflecting on all the philosophical scientific evidence, I give that subjectively at least 50% probability. And then if they're possible, will they be created? Well, it looks like in principle, all the tools are there for them to be created. Yes, things could go wrong, but I would say subjectively, I'd give that at least 50% probability, multiply those out. You then get 25% probability that most beings are simulated. I think if it's 25% probability, most beings are simulated. And if that's to say that 99% of beings are simulated, you then get a 99% chance that we are simulated, multiply that 25% by the 99%. And well, I guess you get 24.75% probability that we're simulated. But let's, let's round that off among friends and call it 25%, not a rigorous argument, but that's roughly where I am subjectively on this.
0: So you mentioned earlier that the simulators might be constrained by the ethics of scientific research. If you were to simulate a world, what are the constraints that you would place on yourself and what do you think the best possible simulated world would be like?
1: It's a really interesting question that goes to some very deep issues in ethics and the theory of value, you know, what makes for a good life? I mean, I think part of what's good in a good life comes from the classical hedonist utilitarian view is that. The fundamental source of goodness is pleasure over pain, happiness over suffering. So from that point of view, you should you know, maximize pleasure, maximize happiness. But yeah, you could do that with I don't know, a whole lot of wireheading, just producing beings that are in a permanent state of bliss. And well, that might be nice for a while. I'm not sure that that's the best possible world that has millions of people sitting around in a permanent state of bliss. It seems that there' are among the things that give value to our lives are our projects, our achievements, overcoming oppression, the struggle to actually build a life, building relationships, building community. So I guess I would say that yeah, the best possible world is going to involve some element of uh, of this, but you know maybe it's a world that gives people puts people in a position to to achieve. Their projects to build relationships, to build communities, and it's an interesting question: exactly what is the best possible world? Here, I mean, if everyone is guaranteed to achieve all their project, to achieve all their desires instantly, then maybe that's somehow that's somehow too easy, and we get back to meaninglessness. The philosopher Robert Nozick had the example of the Experience Machine, where basically it was pre-scripted in advance that you would live this wonderful life where everything goes great. For you, you're extremely successful and extremely happy. Most people have the intuition, oh, that's not so great. That's too easy, that world. You didn't really achieve anything in that world and so on. So I think that the best of all possible worlds is going to have to be set up to allow people to, to achieve their goals without horrific obstacles to them. But it's still going to leave some room for, for freedom and autonomy.
2: So if you were to mark this world, if you were to assess it, compared with other possible worlds that could have been simulated, assuming this is a simulation, how well was it created?
1: In terms of achieving a valuable world, that's good for the most beings possible. Yeah, I guess I'd be inclined to say not, not terribly well. I mean, I mean, obviously you look at the number of humans throughout history who have suffered enormously, I mean, there are extreme cases like the Holocaust. I mean, it seems pretty clear that if you're going to design a, a simulation to to maximize, you know, goodness, you you would not build a world with anything like the the Holocaust, but just look at on a more mundane scale, just look at all the people who have had difficult and unpleasant lives and unhealthy lives and great periods of, of illness and poverty for, you know, for most of human history. Then we can bring in the non-human animals many of whom have lived lives with an awful lot, of, uh, awful lot of pain and suffering. So I guess I'm kind of think this world was, gives every side of maybe having been designed by simulators who said, let's set up the laws of physics and evolution and watch it go, but they weren't terribly trying to, uh, trying to optimize the goodness of the world. In the case of theology, this is a version of what people call the problem of evil. It's like, yeah, it doesn't seem to be a benevolent God because look at all the terrible things. That happen, and then there are there are things you can say to say why god would permit this to happen but yeah likewise it looks it looks like for similar reasons uh, our simulators are trying to maximize goodness i mean that said the world is not all bad there's many many amazing and remarkable things have happened in human history and you can make the case that the unit the cosmos is better off for having this simulation they're not, but probably in the space of simulations. I mean, I was going to say maybe it's mediocre, but arguably it's better than mediocre, maybe many simulations would not even produce conscious beings at all. This simulation, this world has conscious beings and remarkable things, civilization, culture, science, so I'd say in all those perspectives, it's, mu- it's going to be much better than just a, an average simulation with nothing at all, but probably still quite far from the, uh, from the maximum point.
0: So you drew this parallel with philosophy of religion and, you know, you might very well have these, like a deist God, right? Who says, well, I'm just running an experiment. Let's just see how it goes. And I'm running millions of these things simultaneously. So I don't really pop in. I'm not an activist. Maybe in the early stage of the simulation, I kind of poke my nose in and, you know, check how you guys are doing. But after a couple of thousand years, I can check out. But one of the things that a lot of theists believe in is this notion of an afterlife. The idea that you could have a soul that transcends a physical reality. What would that look like in the virtual world? So if we are in a digital simulation, what would it mean for us to persist beyond our digital deaths?
1: I've never been much of a theist myself. I've always thought of myself as an atheist. But the simulation hypothesis does open up an avenue to some of these traditional theist ideas, or at least to a you know a naturalistic version of them, deism, if you like, as opposed to theism with a relatively naturalistic God. I mean, the creator, if we're in a simulation, the creator has some of the properties of a traditional God, at least they created this local universe and they may be very powerful and very knowledgeable about what's going on in this universe one analogy is what people sometimes call a demiurge. The local God, the crafts our universe, even if not the top God at the top of the scale. And this does also, this does then raise the question of life after death, which you might've thought was this supernatural idea involving souls that we shouldn't take seriously in the age of science. But if you're on board with a simulation idea, I suppose there's a form of this that might make sense. For example, what happens when we die? Well, there's going to be code for each of us, right? There's going to be a something running on the computer, corresponding to our brains, and our algorithms, There are going to be backups, presumably. And perhaps when we die, our brains disintegrate, but somebody could, somebody could lift out that code and put it into a simulation somewhere else. So who's to say that the simulators don't, at least for, for some of us, maybe some people they're particularly interested in, they, they lift out that code and keep it around, maybe send it to a new heaven simulation. Maybe just keep it around uh, waiting for some later time when they run a new simulation where, I don't know, Einstein gets to meet Beethoven who gets to meet Proust and put them all in a room together. So uh, yeah, this at least opens up the possibility that our simulators could do that, but also, as you say, it may be that our simulators are just not interested in doing anything like that. Maybe they're just scientists who set the universe up they actually actually they ran a million simulations at once and they just varied a few parameters to see what happens in each of them and they're now just running overnight in the morning they'll all be finished they'll come back and and collect the data if so we're going to have a god who is silent i guess on the traditional conception
2: so this raises some interesting questions around what makes you you in other words personal identity so If all I am is a piece of code that seems very different from saying who I am is my body or who I am is my memories, unless you're identifying that code with memories. So let's take the matrix example. So Neo wakes up as a body in a pod. Is he that body in that pod or is he the mind in the matrix, which then gets removed from the matrix? And it seems like some people would say intuitively, well, Neo is really the guy in the pot. Neo is not the guy in the matrix. And so when he wakes up, he realizes a fundamental fact about himself that he was mistaken about before. He thought he had a body in the matrix, but he didn't. He actually has a body in real life. I'm trying to resist this idea that, that the simulations as real.
1: So I don't think that we are our bodies. I think we have bodies. But we're not identical to our bodies. And one way this comes out is that in, pr- in principle, people could transplant, say their brains into different bodies and now they'd have a, a new body, but they would still be the same person. Maybe even we could upload into, into different bodies and so, on. so I think we have bodies. One interesting thing about virtual world is that sometimes we can have two bodies, like even just in the ordinary scenario, of virtual reality headsets. I've got a physical body, but when I enter VR, I have a digital body, an avatar, not quite the same thing, but it's still one way of being embodied in VR. So for Neo, I wouldn't say, I would say he's not the body in the VAT and he's not the digital body either. He's the person who has those bodies. And uh, at least there is, okay, there's a deep question. What is a person, but I do think it's much more closely tied to the mind than to the body. So maybe in the first instance, there's one conscious being here who is actually embodied in two different ways. Inside the matrix, he's embodied in this ultimately digital body with one form. Outside the matrix, he's embodied in this biological body inside the vat. And there's really only one person here. Where is that person? This actually raises tricky questions about. Where is Neo's mind in the matrix? I mean, I think the, the na- most natural thing to think is it's tied to the biological brain in the, in the vet. There is a very interesting question about what's going on inside the simulated brain, inside the matrix. If Neo goes into brain surgery, will they find a brain in there? And will that brain itself be conscious? Is it possible there are actually two Neos here? One tied to the brain in the vat in the pod and one tied to the simulated brain and the matrix. My theory is this is why they always, they have to make sure they keep those brains absolutely synchronized with each other to make sure you never get two people. And this by the way, explains why if you die in the matrix, you die in, in the outside. world because the brains are simulated brain death in the matrix brain, death outside the matrix They're synchronized, but yeah, so the questions of personal identity are quite deep here, but I do want to say that both of the bodies the real
0: so there's a wonderful episode of black mirror which was shot in south africa in cape town called san Perro. and the idea is that mm. you've got two elderly people who visit a virtual world and they have this love affair there where they're in these young bodies they're in this beautiful place uh, and eventually they sort of decide to migrate there permanently uh, and they have a sense of an afterlife there now one of the things that you talked about is this idea that you, know, you don't want things going out of sync Could we have a cold storage moment, where what happens is that we download your conscious states, and in ten years' time we put you into the into the simulation? Would that still be you? Is it okay to have a hibernation? Or if there is any moment of discontinuity, do you cease to exist? What are the the kinds of things that we would need for there to be the continuity? What memories would you need from the the let's say the the real genuine physical reality that need to kind of cross over to the digital reality? Are we really creating new beings in that place? And the old being is dead.
1: These are these are great questions. And I don't have a settled view of personal identity, what makes a person the same person over time. So I don't have definitive answers to this. But these are actually becoming practical questions. You mentioned cold storage. There's actually a group, there are groups, there's a group called Alcor in, in the US, in Arizona, that actually freezes people's brains and sometimes their bodies as well, with the hope that later, they might be able to reactivate them. Actually, they invited me to come give a talk to their uh, to their group. So in about a month or so, I'm, I'm I'm going out there. And for them, it's really important, these philosophical questions. What other people are doing this in order that they could survive and potentially be immortal or at least live a whole lot longer. And then they want to know what well, the conditions under which this will actually continue. I think you know, most people have the intuition that you just freeze the brain and then unfreeze it Maybe that's good enough because it's analogous to maybe what happens when we go to sleep at night, we'd lose consciousness and then we get it back, but it may well be a period, a long period when uh, unfreezing is dangerous and damages the brain, but you can instead do something like take all the information we have about the brain, run it through ex- extremely sophisticated brain scans. Maybe they're also going to have records of our bodies and behavior and so on, then they'll take all that and they'll reconstruct a person who's as much like you as possible. Will that be you or will that be a, will that be a new person? Or there's also the case depicted in San Perro, the black mirror episode where they basically record the whole brain's activity and then upload it to a brain and then the question is, would that be you one thing that Seems plausible to me is under certain circumstances that could be you. If you do the uploading gradually, for example, if you replace your neurons one at a time by silicon chips, gradually end up with an uploaded version. And I think it's pretty plausible that if it's you at the beginning, it's you when 25% of your brain is replaced, all this happens gradually enough. It's still you at the end. But if you go for the case where there's discontinuity, which you were raising, we go to a newly uploaded being, then things get difficult. I mean, in the case where the original biological person is still around, we also have an uploaded version. We're not terribly inclined to say that the uploaded version is the original. It's someone else. Now we get rid of the original now. So if we get rid of the the biological original, is this going to make a difference? Well, I think it's it's still you. And if it is, even if it is, yeah, there's the question of how much memory needs to be preserved. I guess I'm inclined to think that what matters the most here is questions of the mind, questions of consciousness, questions of memory, questions of psychology. And I think all those things can be present in code just as much as with brains. And the code versus brain distinction doesn't ultimately matter too much. In fact, some of these issues will come up just if you duplicate the brain and make a new brain, as in the Star Trek. Teleporter, if you uh, make a duplicate of you, the same kind of raid is that me or is that somebody else? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. We take polls on this question among philosophers. I've taken polls on this through through a survey through full papers and uh, yeah, philosophers are split on this half, half, and then I'm split on this question myself. So, but this is a question, a philosophical question that we are going to need to resolve sometime before too long, because these technologies are going to be here. And people are going to want some answers. So philosophers are, in, are going to be in high demand for uh, answering these questions. And hopefully someone will come up with a better answer than I have.
2: These uh, issues around continuity are very interesting for Mark and I because we argue about this all the time. So I think it's fair to say at the very least that continuity helps for identity and discontinuity hurts. So if you, if there's a competition, am I this being or that being it it counts in the favor of being a that i'm that being or it's me if i'm more continuous with that being so discontinuity hurts and then mark and i have had these incredibly long discussions about whether coma patients are the same person whether let's say you black out drunk and then wake up afterwards are you the same person you go to sleep are you the same person etc and and now this is an extension of that you get cryogenically frozen and then rewoken are you the same person it raises very interesting questions around death, when you die, when you don't die. But what's interesting is you could be quite Parfittian about this and say, well, there's degrees of continuity and there's degrees of perhaps not identity, but continuity and continuity is what matters. And I survive to a certain degree through, through these other beings. So as soon as one inserts degrees, that's when I start to wonder when we're talking about simulations, whether we can't say they're less real Is real a one-zero? Is it a binary concept? It's real or it's not real? The simulation is real or it's not real? Or could we think about certain types of reality as less real than others?
1: Yeah, I think many of these notions may ultimately end up being degreed. Well, one way I think about all this is in terms of the metaphor, our pre-theoretical view of the world is represented by the Garden of Eden, where everything is absolute, objects are out there in space, real objects, solid objects, real colors, there's real right versus wrong is an absolute. We have free will and maybe personal identity is this absolute fact over time. Anyone in the future either is you or isn't you, but then science comes along and tells us actually, well, it's not really clear that there are colors out there in the external world. They're a complex product of our minds, and maybe even space isn't fundamental, and morality is tied to our psychology, and maybe there's no such thing as absolute personal identity over time. But yet Derek Parfit, as much as anybody, has made the case that maybe there are no absolute facts about personal identity to be had. So then you could go say, well, maybe we'll just find our next best replacement for these things. We used to think there were these absolute colors out there in the world, capital C colors. That's how it was in the garden of Eden. But now there's just lowercase C colors, complicated patterns of reflectance that, that produce the the mental effects that colors do. So likewise, maybe there's no capital I identity over time, but there's lowercase I identity. Then the question is, yeah, what is that? What is that worth? What is that good for? When we dream about living forever, for example, would that be vindicated by may arguably we're dreaming about having capital I identity that you know, lasts forever. If it's merely a matter of there being someone in the future who has memories of the, uh, whatever degree notion you might get from lowercase, lowercase I identity, then the question is, is that good enough? I mean, one view, which I kind of like here is there's this whole Buddhist view that basically, oh, there isn't any real identity over time. Every morning, when you wake up, you're a new person. In fact, every moment you're a new person and there's nothing deep apart from some psychology that ties you to this person yesterday. Um, I think if I became convinced of this parfitian view, maybe then it would have the consequence that, uh, that, yeah, no deep identity over time, just this weak kind of identity over time. And there is a real question there about how much of our intuitive picture of identity and of hope for the future this can vindicate. I mean, in a way that a continuous degree notion is something conservative version of this. Okay. Well, it's just that it's not absolute, but you can have 90% identity, 80% identity, 70% identity. Okay. Well, that's at least close to what we wanted. If I get 99% continuity with someone in the future, okay. That's pretty close to my pre-theoretical hope. I get worried by the view that says, no, actually there are no deep facts of capital I identity at all. There are just these substitutes, uh, memory continuity, and so on. And the question is how much are those really worth?
0: So I'd like to return to an earlier topic which we discussed briefly. This notion that what would make a simulation more meaningful is that if you were engaged with beings who possess consciousness, that instead of just having the simulacrum of a relationship with your wife, that even if she's digital, she has conscious awareness and that would make it more worthwhile. Now. A lot of the work that you're quite famous for is this work on consciousness. And I imagine that some people will be skeptical of the notion that you could have non-biological beings who are nonetheless conscious. In other words, conscious beings that are digital. So what are the things that could persuade us of consciousness in these digital beings? And what are the things that you think allow for consciousness to arise?
1: We don't understand consciousness and we don't understand why consciousness exists at all how physical processing gives rise to consciousness and what it is about that physical processing that really matters in giving you consciousness. So to some extent, all these questions are open. Nevertheless, my own view is that consciousness is not biology only. That it's possible to have consciousness in non-biological systems, such as silicon systems. And maybe the paradigm case here would be just say a brain, but where all the neurons are replaced by, by silicon chips, like a functional isomorph of the brain in silicon. And at least in that case, I'm fairly confident that if the brain is conscious, the isomorph will be conscious. And one way we can get there is by thinking about the same scenario I brought up a little while ago, which is the gradual replacement of neurons by silicon chips. We replace one neuron at a time. I say a silicon chip, maybe you replace 10% of the brain and then say, well, I am still conscious 20%, 30%, 40%. If someone insists that the simulated brain is not conscious, then you're going to have to say something happens during this uh, gradual replacement process. Either consciousness will gradually fade out or it will suddenly disappear at a certain threshold. I've tried to argue in my work that neither of those are very plausible. It's much more plausible that consciousness will continue throughout the process. If that's right, then we at least have the possibility that a non-biological silicon system could be conscious. It's still true that we don't have a solution to the problem of consciousness. We don't know how silicon could give you consciousness, but we also don't know how brains could give you consciousness. Somehow they do. My view here is just there's nothing special about the, the biology so that the silicon and neurons will be at least on a par as a substrate
0: so i just have this concern which is it seems like if we think about the Sorites problem it's very hard to tell when we're adding grades of sand when we've moved to a pile of sand we can't really say it's ambiguous but we know that there's a difference between the one grain and the pile and it might be that we just know that a full machine made of silicone is not conscious and that if we're you know replacing parts of the human brain with, with silicone that at some juncture, some unknown juncture, consciousness ceases to be. But the move that you've made is to say, well, given that there's this ambiguity when we're replacing neurons with silicone, the end product must therefore be identical as the beginning product in that the sense that both are conscious. And that seems deeply counterintuitive to me.
1: It seems deeply counterintuitive to you that the end product would be conscious. So what are you inclined to think happens along the way? Is consciousness gradually Disappear and disintegrate, or is there a threshold where your consciousness will disappear entirely?
0: Yes, I would think that you have a cessation of consciousness. I suppose what's interesting about it, of course, is what we might have is you have genuine consciousness at full neurons, and you moving towards the simulacrum of it. I'm assuming that, in other words, the being that you're monitoring seems the same throughout. In other words, they're reporting data and observing the world and describing things to you as you're replacing. But it seems like there's a difference between that philosophical zombie who has no inner life and the genuine person who has the inner life and the external effect. Now, we can't observe the difference externally, but it seems like when I show you the, the philosophical zombie, you say, well, that thing isn't conscious, I accept that. It's difficult to tell external differences between that and a genuine you know, person. And the fact that we could change the substances in between, we might say, well, we don't know when the swap happens, but I would think that you would think that the one is conscious and the one is not.
1: I think we can certainly conceive of philosophical zombies as we can conceive of say the silicon creature as being conscious, and we can conceive of it as not being conscious as being a zombie. And both, those are both serious hypotheses that we can at least make sense of. The question is, which of them do we have reason to believe? I can also do that with a brain. I can look at you and I can conceive that you're conscious and I can conceive that you're a philosophical, a philosophical zombie. I have no proof that you're conscious. In practice, most of us allow that other people are conscious on the grounds that you're partly, that you're relevantly similar to us. You're behaving in similar ways and you say you're conscious. Some of that is present also in the case of if we had a Silicon duplicate, say of you that I was talking to. The behavior would be there. You'd say that you were conscious. Now, of course the similarities would be a bit lower because we wouldn't have the biology in common. We just have the abstract organization in common, but still I'm inclined to think that the difference between biology and it's hard to see how the difference between biology and silicon could matter so much, given that we can actually substitute, you know, go back and forth between say a biological version of a neuron and a silicon version of a neuron. And I think the question that someone on your side of this has to answer is why does that make such a big difference and what kind of difference um, does it make? Again, there's the whole question, would it gradually fade out or is there like a magic neuron where once you replace that one consciousness suddenly disappears? And I think those are very, I do think that the biology is required view of consciousness. The one I think you seem sympathetic to is a serious one, but I do think there are also some very hard questions for it to answer.
2: Maybe one way of teasing out the problem is to relate consciousness to value. Now, I'm not saying there's a perfect relationship, but it seems like for a creature to have value in a certain way, consciousness at least helps. Maybe it's not a necessary condition, but it helps. So, Mark uh, often discusses the following thought experiment with regards to abortion, and I think we can can parallel it here. Okay, so the, the abortion argument runs well, Suppose you've got a a zygote in one hand and you've got a baby in another hand and you slip. And now you can catch one, right? So you can catch the baby or you can catch the zygote, but you can't catch both. Which one do you catch? And this is supposed to be an objection to the the pro-life position. The pro-life position is that they have equal value. At least one version of the pro-life position is that they have equal value. And so according to the pro-life position, there's no reason to catch one rather than the other. They're equally valuable now here we could we could run a parallel a parallel objection right so we could say you've got the silicon chip in one hand which contains a simulation of a baby and then you've got the actual baby in the other hand and you're walking around and you fall and one of them can be caught and whichever one lands on the floor goes splat suppose it's the end of the end of that that's that being would we care should we care on your view it seems like we shouldn't right we should have equal value associated with each, suppose they're identically behaving babies in their realities, they have identical psychological states. They have identical parents. Well, the one is simulated parents, the other one's not simulated parents, but they both behave the same. They both feel the same about their respective babies. On your view, there should be no, there should be no difference in, in how we feel about one falling on the floor and the other. But it seems like there is, right? It seems like we should catch the flesh and meat baby, not the silicon one.
1: Yeah, I run a version of this actually in, in my book, Reality Plus, I call this the simulation trolley problem. It kind of mashes this up with the old trolley problem where there's one person on one track, and five on the other, and you got to choose which track to go down. So the way I do it is, on one track, there's one conscious being, on the other track, there's five simulated beings. Do You switch track from the one conscious being to kill the five simulated beings. If you believe that simulated beings are zombies that lack consciousness entirely, then I would say in that case, then sure, switch tracks and kill the five simulated beings. I think consciousness is the ground of the meaning and value of our lives. So without that, they're just androids objects. And they don't, they certainly don't have the kind of moral status that humans have. So in that case, it would make sense to kill the simulated being. But my own view is that simulated beings are conscious. They're not zombies. And I think that was the version that you were running in your thought experiment too, where the simulated baby, but not to conceive of this as a philosophical zombie that lacks consciousness entirely. We're conceiving of the simulated being as a being with subjective experiences and suffers, it feels happy and so on. In that case, I think this being has a pretty much exactly the same moral status that a, uh, that a human baby does and that we shouldn't kill five simulator babies compared to one human baby. That would be, that would be a moral mistake. I mean, psychologically, I certainly understand why we might feel as if we should save the human baby first over the Silicon baby. It's a member of our species, it's biological, it's flesh. We have so many psychological reactions, which are triggered to being biologically human and to protecting human babies and so on. That might not be triggered by a robot version or a virtual version, which is made of cold silicon chips or maybe only embodied inside of virtual reality, depending on how the case goes, but I'd be inclined to think it's just a this is just a, we've got many psychological reactions that go against morality. I'd like to think that we'd be, just as we're able to expand our moral circle to go beyond members of our, of our culture or our race to other human beings, even to other, to other species, if we discover Martians, we, we might not be especially inclined to save, to save Martians over saving, to save five Martians over saving one human, but likewise, I think that would probably be a moral a moral mistake. So here, I guess I think I'd want to distinguish that the psychologically natural reaction from the correct moral reaction. And I'd hope that eventually we could come to include these conscious beings inside our moral circle.
0: So one of our early episodes is called Do Robots Have Rights? And we interviewed Rob Sparrow. And Rob takes the view that in order for these beings to have rights, they must be embodied. And he thought if you were picking between a very sophisticated consciousness that's, you know, stuck on a hard drive versus the flesh and body human being, you should always pick the flesh and body human being. And we very much pushed him in the direction of that speciesist argument to say that's just your raw psychology and your prejudice, you know, against the the poor robots. I wonder about this. If we think that those conscious beings have some value and some rights, is it okay to create simulations? So, David Benatar, one of our guests as well, is very famous for his views on antinatalism. He thinks that it's wrong to bring human beings into existence because existence necessarily entails some suffering. And when pushed, he thinks that even if you could remove all the suffering and that really the world that you'd be born into would be one of just pure bliss, he thinks that that's um, about as good as not being brought into existence and that you'd be, you could flip a coin on those picks. So is there anything wrong with creating these these digital beings if they are going to be conscious? Would we have certain obligations to them? Maybe have our simulators failed in their obligations to us?
1: I certainly think that if you hold David Benatar's view that one should not create new human beings, then this point will totally extend to simulated beings. If it's wrong to create a, let's say if it's wrong to create a human being whose life contains any amounts of suffering, it will be equally wrong to create a simulated being whose life contains any amount of suffering. Because I'm assuming these will be conscious beings, their, their, their suffering will be conscious and will be experienced. Now, I don't myself hold this, this view of, of Benatar's. I think it's, it's probably true that it's not, there's some threshold of suffering over which it's not okay to create a being whose life involves that much suffering, if someone's life is going to be intense agony throughout, I think it would be monstrous to create that being. So clearly there's some, it's reasonable to say there's some threshold of suffering, but that said, I would say that for an average, normal human life, let's say what's a human life, just say a life like mine, which, you know, there's been some suffering along the way, but overall there's been a, there's been a, I would say a significant net balance of happiness. Over suffering, I'm very glad myself to have been brought into existence. And I'm inclined to think that for other beings who've got a similar kind of net balance in their life, it's likewise good that they've been brought into existence. So I would say the same for a for a silicon being. Now, if you have the extreme view though, that it's never good for anyone to be brought into existence. Either it's terrible, if there's suffering any amount of suffering is terrible. If there's no suffering and it's just neutral, and I suppose you'd say that, that simulations were morally neutral. I suppose we'd still have the, if someone was interested in simulations for their epistemological purposes, like, running simulations for science to see what happens, they'd still be allowed to run the morally neutral ones. Maybe, or maybe actually um, what we'd end up doing is just creating simulations with zombies. If that's possible. If it's possible to create philosophical zombies, if we figure out the trick, then maybe the ethics are going to require that when we run our simulations, we never create conscious beings because of all the all these problems. Rather, we run them with, with philosophical zombies. And maybe you could at least get some of the benefits, some say of the scientific or predictive benefits of simulations by simulating zombies. If on the other hand it turns out that there are systematic things that only conscious beings can do and that zombies zombies can't do, then that will end up having limitations and maybe the science and the ethics will end up colliding here.
2: One of our other guests, Stephen Kirshner, he takes the opposite view from David Benataz. So he thinks that life is great and that bringing new life into the world is fantastic to the point where he bites some very strange bullets, but he would love the idea that virtual reality is reality, that you can have conscious virtual beings Because he'd say the best thing you can do is just go and create a ton of these, especially if they can in turn create more. It's astonishingly fantastic to create these virtual worlds. And it seems to me like that's counterintuitive. So it seems to me like when you create a new simulation with a whole bunch of virtual creatures that you've done something incredible. That strikes me as just as implausible as the opposite view, which is that you've done something absolutely abominable if you're a David Benatarian. So it, this, I, I, I keep pushing this idea that, okay, there's some consciousness involved. Okay, there might be some moral value involved and some moral obligations, but I still want to say they watered down in the simulation cases, that they don't count as much, and that I'm trying to push that intuition with these cases.
1: How do you feel about, say, the- a a version of it where we we don't create a simulation. Just we create like a, uh, a duplicate, a physical duplicate. Maybe we create say a duplicate earth somewhere in the, somewhere else in the galaxy. And we kind of run evolution for the second time and we get duplicates of all of us there. And they're not the original, maybe they're clones. I don't know. Do you feel that that matters as much? Or do you also feel that, that somehow, whatever, whatever status creating those beings has, it's also watered down.
2: So i'd have some questions around the duplicates so one of the questions i'd have is do they have true beliefs about their past so are you duplicating them from scratch so they grow up they have all the historical information that we do and it really is veridical that they have beliefs about what's happened on their twin earth and that's all true or is it a snapshot against duplication so We duplicate as we are right now, and there's another David Chalmers and another Jason having a discussion, and they have these false beliefs about having that discussion for the last hour. Do they have true or false beliefs? And it seems to me like if they have false beliefs, that that counts against them in some way.
1: Okay, yeah. So the way I'm imagining it, I'm imagining a scenario where they have true beliefs, both the unsimulated beings. Maybe we create a world and we simulate it actually has a long history. And we run through all that. And likewise in the simulation, I'm imagining a simulated universe where we simulate everything back to the big bang and everything that they think happened since the big bang did happen in the simulation. But that's interesting. If that's the main point of difference then, then it looks like the evaluative issue comes down to an epistemological issue or an issue about, an issue about truth and that we could remove that worry by establishing at least in the case where the simulated beings are adequately positioned epistemologically, then they ought to be on a par. Is the difference between being just the difference between being computer-generated versus being biological, or is it something else that that matters here?
2: Yeah, I'm prepared to accept that if they were molecule for molecule identical and they have true beliefs, they matter just as much as we do. But the molecules matter to me, (laughs) that they have molecules. Yeah.
1: Whether in any case, whether I take the Benatar view or the Kirchner view, I guess I'm strongly inclined to think that creating a simulated world is a momentous event. I mean, if it was a world of zombies, maybe it's not momentous in quite the same way. It's just a scientific experiment. But if you're creating billions of conscious beings, that is a momentous, a morally momentous thing to do. Maybe it's wonderful. Maybe it's terrible. Maybe it's just on that balance good. And that is kind of on a par. Maybe not good, you know. God creating the universe and bringing conscious beings into existence for the first time, but to bring another 7 billion conscious beings into the universe. We are morally momentous, not at all to be done lightly. I very much hope when this is done in the future, it's extremely heavily regulated so that people aren't able to just do this at the at the drop of a hat, but only be done under very careful and limited conditions. But I guess that's a question for the, uh, the regulators and the institutional review boards. the future
0: so one of the things that you hinted at earlier is that you've run surveys uh, among philosophers about their philosophical views so you really do have this scientific inquiring mind and uh, i've been reading those surveys over the years and one of the things that i've always wondered about is how frequently people change their minds when we see this sort of divergence in beliefs about fundamental things around morality or the nature of consciousness And we see trends shifting. Is it that people are shifting their minds or is it that old people are dying off and new people are coming in?
1: We do have data about this from the latest surveys. The first survey of this form, my colleague David Bourget and I did in 2009. And we asked 30 questions to many professional philosophers. Questions like mind, physicalism or non-physicalism, God, theism or atheism. And they could report which view they accepted or which view they leaned toward. And yeah, we got really interesting results. 56% of philosophers endorsed physicalism, said 28% not. 73% endorsed atheism to about 13% not and so on. Then in 2020, we did this, the survey again, this time with a bunch more questions, 70 more questions, we sent it to more people, but we also got to do longitudinal comparisons over time, both of the group and of individuals. And we did find, yeah, some individual, significant number of individuals changing their Mm -hmm. mind and sometimes in systematic directions. I'd have to like to pull it out to see exactly what the distinctive trends were. We also found cases where there was a change due to change in population. We separated out population level changes from individual changes. And I think we found both kinds of effects. So there were effects that seemed to correlate with having new people, younger people coming into the field with different views, and there were effects tied to individuals changing their minds. I can't just no, off the top of my head I can't remember what were the things that individuals changed their minds over the most. But in some cases this was tied to a certain views like non-classical logic is more popular in 2020 than it was in 2009. Except There's been a greater openness to, to non-classical forms of logic. And I think that shows up both of a level of individuals. Some individuals have become more sympathetic to non-classical logic now than 10 years ago, and of a level of people coming into the field.
2: I think that's fascinating, specifically that individuals change their minds, not just that sort of society looks different at different times and specifically that it's individual philosophers because uh, i often get asked the question have i changed my mind over the course of this show so we've interviewed over 100 philosophers and have these robust discussions about various things and i'm often asked have i changed my mind about anything and i haven't <laughs> really no. not even and about I, something
1: very minor that you haven't thought about before and
2: now you have maybe about yeah on, on details sure sure so i i now think that certain objections are stronger or weaker than before but i haven't had a dionysus experience where i sort of go 180 from utilitarian to kantian vice versa and i assume that was the experience of most philosophers that they get their phd and they ossify into a certain position. And and sure, they refine the arguments born against, but that's their position. It's very interesting to hear that that's not the case.
1: It's possible maybe that on the things that matter most to somebody originally, they don't change their mind that much on that, maybe occasionally when big developments happen or they have a big new idea. But I think one thing that happens a lot is that there's only a relatively small number of philosophical issues that we have strong commitments on and on other issues, we develop commitments over time. So for example, I changed my mind about this whole, I started out as a Cartesian. We thought that if we're in virtual reality, none of this is real. I changed my mind about that at a certain point. That wasn't exactly changing my mind about a strong commitment. I hadn't written about, say these Cartesian issues much previously, rather it was more like developing a new view. I think that happens quite a lot. For philosophers, on the other hand, the question, questions of consciousness, on which I was had strong commitments quite early, is there a hard problem of consciousness? Well, I would say at most I've changed my minds on relatively my mind on relatively detailed aspects of that question. The uh, which form of which view is the most uh, is the most plausible? But on the big picture, the big strong commitments, I've changed less, and I suspect that pattern holds true. So if we did a uh, fill papers survey that also included strengths of commitment are. have you published on this and so on, then maybe we'd try and uh, it'd be interesting if we found less change of minds for the stronger and more established commitments.